All right. Well, it is good. It is good to be together. Happy Easter to all of you. Before I dive in to um, Acts chapter nine this morning, I want to tell you about just something fun that we're doing uh, with this Easter. And so we're having a raffle. Um, so just you're going to see a QR code on the screen. Here's the deal. OK, and this is just just how this is the true story. All right. So we realized, um, you know, maybe one or two months ago. Wow. We're going to, on Easter Sunday, be in Acts chapter 9, looking at the story of Saul on the road to Damascus, like being blinded by Jesus, and it's powerful. And so our church being people who are already incredibly motivated always to invite their friends and family to come with them uh, to church on Sunday at times, we thought, you know, for Easter and for this year and for this passage, let's Let's add like some additional incentives. Um, so anyways, I went far and wide. I traveled to distant lands and I got signed copies of books by the author. One is the cookbook by R.T. Yeah, really, I went really far for this one. So um, you can't get this anywhere else. Uh, and then um, a book, Signs of the Messiah by Andreas Kostenberger, also traveled to many distant lands. Um, I'm joking, of course. These are, these are people who are part of our, our fellowship here, but have written books. And these are great resources. And so it's just a win-win. It's like, hey, let's get a little extra excited about inviting people. Let's have this raffle. And, um, and also, I have three bundles of books that we're going to raffle off at the end of second service. And so if you haven't signed up, scan the QR code. The only rules are that you're a guest or that you invited a guest. Your guest does not have to have come, okay? It's all right. It's not like you get rewarded for results. So you just get rewarded for effort, okay? Um, but this is just fun. This is just having fun. So we'll just uh, we'll stop with that for now. And um, RT, it's okay if I set your book on your keyboard here. Um, Okay, so turn to Acts chapter 9. Turn to Acts chapter 9. Happy Easter. Um, we're looking at a message this morning titled, Encountering the Real Jesus. Encountering the Real Jesus. And so uh, we have been in the book of Acts going through it verse by verse, just studying it like so carefully. And, you know, in, 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 in Acts so far, now that we're in chapter 9, it's important that you know that in the beginning, in chapter 1, the risen Jesus ascends to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. This is what's told in the book of Acts. In chapter 2, the church begins. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends on Pentecost. And then we see in chapter 3 and 4 different accounts of the apostles ministering in Jerusalem and there's opposition to their ministry. Um, as we continued in Acts 6, we saw... A sermon titled Growing Pains, and we saw uh, deacons being commissioned to help serve the needs of the church. And then there was a really pivotal moment when the first Christian was killed for his faith. It was Stephen. It was, he was the martyr in the early church. And because of that situation, a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem, and Christians scattered. But as they scattered, they brought with them the message of Jesus to other cities. So now the gospel has left Jerusalem. And we saw Philip in Samaria, he led a magician uh, to the Lord and then was brought to a road that was on the way to Ethiopia and led an Ethiopian official 
to the Lord and the gospel is spreading. And so now we're in Acts 9. We're in Acts 9. Now we've heard of this character in Acts 9 because at the death, the stoning of Stephen, it mentioned there was a young man named Saul there approving his death. Well, now we're going to learn more about his story, Saul. And what this passage does for us this morning, it brings up the subject of conversion. Conversion. What does that mean? <laughs> like, whoa, conversion. The dictionary defines it as a change in character, form, or function. What's your personal feeling toward the word conversion? Another definition at dictionary.com, a change from one religion, political belief, or viewpoint to another. You know, we almost don't believe in conversion. Like if someone changes from a political party to another one, what do we say? We say they never really were. We don't even really believe that people really change. We don't love the idea of conversion. It's usually either neutral or negative when we use the word. A convertible sports car, okay? Conversion, that's, that's neutral. I'm going to convert this old school bus into an Airbnb camper and be cool. That's neutral also. Um, I'm converting my U.S. dollars as I travel to a different country to the currency of that land. That's helpful. Conversion therapy. Ooh, what do we think about that? They're just out to get converts. Have you ever heard a statement like that? We have a funny relationship with the word conversion. Well, this is the story this morning about Saul's conversion. And there's actually an interesting book written. It's called um, The Old and the New in Religion from Alexander the Great to Augustine of Hippo. It's not necessarily a Christian book. It's written by a psychologist and philosopher named A.D. Nock. But he argues in his book that there is strong evidence in the story of Saul in the Bible for conversion, not what he calls adhesion. He defines adhesion as accepting a new sort of supplemental worship. But he defines conversion as a substitute, not supplement. As a new way of life in place of the old. And as he looks at the story of Saul in the New Testament, he sees very clearly this is not adhesion, this is conversion. Let's see if we see that this morning. Jesus told Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, late one night, he said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Conversion. So I want to read the passage to you, Acts 9, 1-19. through It'll be on the screen. Uh, I'd love for you to look at a copy of God's Word yourself as we read it. But I want to read this passage, and let me just tell you before I read it that, that I think the big idea this morning, the main thrust of this passage, I think Luke, as he's writing the book of Acts, I think God, as he's given us the book of Acts, and as he's given us this passage, I think the heart is that we would rest our faith, that we would renew our faith. 
in the real Jesus. The real Jesus that Saul encounters in the story. Rest and renew our faith. So Acts 9.1, reading now from verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Bow with me. God, we thank you this morning uh, for the word, for this incredible and encouraging story that challenges us to consider whether we have encountered the real Jesus in similar fashion. Oh God, it's so easy to be like Saul, to be a moral person, to be a religious person, to be by everyone's definition a good and a better than most person. But God, have we encountered the living Christ? And so, God, we pray uh, that we would be a people who know you and who share about you with others. And so, Lord, uh, yeah, bless our time as we study uh, this passage. Renew our faith and help us to rest our faith in the real Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Renew and rest my faith in the real Jesus. Point one is, is from verses one and two. And it is 
the real Jesus who relentlessly seeks and radically saves lost people, okay? Now, I think you just have to kind of step back for a moment and consider this is the book of Acts. So this, this is being written to Christians in the first century, early Christians. This is being written to them. Why? They, they already would have known of Saul. They would have known that this happened to him, that he became a believer. They would have known that. They would have read some of Paul's letters, Romans, you know, Ephesians. They would have known that. So why then does Luke tell the story of Paul's conversion, not one, not two, but three times in the book of Acts? Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. Why does he do it three times? I think it's to remind you to renew your faith in the real Jesus who, listen, be be reminded this morning, the real Jesus relentlessly seeks and radically saves lost people. That's what these verses remind us of. That is why we are given Saul's state of mind as he walks into this story. He wasn't reading the Gospels. He wasn't a seeker. He wasn't considering the claims of Christ. No. What does it say? Verse 1. But Saul, Luke's like, hey, I want you to see this. I want to make sure you grasp his mindset in the beginning of this story. But Saul still, do you see it? Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's like, that's who's about to get converted. That's who's about to get turned and commissioned to be a great missionary for the church. That is who? This guy, breathing threats and murder. The same guy who later will breathe prayers in praise. He is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he was like, well, I don't want to just be a person that's just sitting here breathing threats and murder. Let me do something about it. So what does he do? He goes to the high priest. Verse 2, he asked the high priest, hey, high priest, can I have some letters? Can you, are you a notary? Can you give me some letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if I go up there and I find any belonging to the way, the way, that was a name for Christians used six times in the book of Acts in the early church. It was sort of like their first name before they rebranded several different times, okay? So the way. He says, if I go find anyone that belongs to the way, men or women, and then I can bring them bound to Jerusalem. Would you, Mr. High Priest, give me some letters so I can go do that with your approval and authority? He's like, that's how zealous I am about my murder and my threats. It's like that guy. Jesus relentlessly seeks and radically saves people like that. Damascus is the capital of Syria. It's still a city today. It's actually 82 degrees there this morning. It's not morning there, but it's a real place. It's cloudy. There's 2.5 million people living there today. It's a real place. Saul would have walked to Damascus with his entourage, with his letters, with his threats, breathing and snarling and excited to go arrest Christians because he hates them. 
It's 168 miles. It's not close. It would have taken two full days and eight hours of nonstop walking, no sleeping. That's where he's going. He's going to Damascus to arrest people who are part of the way, who are Christians, and bring them to Jerusalem. Jesus is relentlessly seeking Saul, though. That's what's so amazing. As he's walking in the direction of Damascus, seeking what he's seeking, he's being sought after by Jesus. It's really amazing, isn't it? And I don't want to skip too far ahead into the next part, which is the encounter. But I do want to say that in one of the other accounts, in Acts 26, where it's telling the same story just another time, it says that Jesus not only said to Saul, why are you persecuting me? But he actually said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. (laughs) You know what that means? I brought a prop. <laughs> this is a cane that I bought at Goodwill for a dollar. I thought, so this is a cane uh, that I bought at Goodwill for a dollar, but it's the closest thing I had in my office this morning to a goad. So, what is a goad? It is a wooden stick with metal spikes used to move cattle along, okay? So you're, you're pushing cattle, you're trying to get them to go where you want them to go. Why do I talk about this? Because Jesus says to Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. For a cattle, you know, that kicks back against this wooden stick with metal spikes, it's injuring itself. Jesus says to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, yes, Saul is got his letters in hand. He's going to arrest Christians and do his thing. But Jesus is poking him. How's he poking him? We don't really know. We don't really know. Um, maybe it was Stephen's death. Maybe it was something about the stoning of Stephen as he witnessed that and as he saw in Stephen's eyes the sincerity of faith and the, the holiness of life that Stephen had, and he just struggled with it. Jesus is just poking him. We know from Paul's own testimony that his conscience burdened him. He talks in Romans 7 about that. He says, you know, I desired to do things, but I did not do them. His conscience bothered him. He never felt clean. He never felt right. It's Jesus just poking him. Hey, that's what Jesus does. He pursues us. You know, we, we, we say, oh, I'm seeking God. I, I'm pursuing the Lord. Really, the real truth is that God pursues us before we ever pursue him. And for some of us, he may even be pursuing you in, in, in some profound ways in your life. What is it? What is the way that Jesus is goading you? And how's it going, you kicking against it? Jesus says it, it never goes good. It's not good to kick against the goads, Jesus says in Acts 26, to Saul on this road to Damascus. And so the point here, though, is just that Jesus is relentlessly seeking lost people. But he's also radically 
saving lost people. He's radically saving them. We see here from this account, just from the first two verses, that Saul is in no way warming up to Christianity, is he? i got to set this down, or else I'm going to use it the whole sermon. It's going to be so distracting. Um, he is in no way warming up to Christianity. Jesus has to radically save him. This is, you know, a radicalized religious zealot. It's a Pharisee. And Jesus says, I'm going to radically save you. And it really reminds us of a few things, doesn't it? One is I think it clears away a common misconception. I think oftentimes when, when we look from the outside in at Christians, we think, oh, you know, Every Christian must be a person who just chose to be super into Jesus. And that's not really my choice, but that's their choice. We look at Christians that way sometimes. We say, oh, it's probably for some sort of uh, moral reasons, some sort of need to feel morally superior, or maybe psychological reasons, some sort of need to feel that way. That's why they're so into Jesus. We think things like that. And Saul would say, oh, you you don't get it at all. I didn't need any of that. I had all of that. A true Christian is, is someone not that chose Jesus, but that Jesus chose. And I think that's what we see here. Jesus relentlessly seeks and radically saves lost people. This first two verses is a great reminder to us that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's a great reminder to us that Jesus' church is greater than Saul persecuting the church. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we need to rest and renew our faith in the real Jesus who relentlessly seeks and radically saves lost people. Second, the real Jesus who can and must be known through a personal encounter. So look with me at verses 3 through 9. I'm going to skip through these and, and talk about each one a little bit. Verse 3, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now, hopefully we have the clear picture of this. I, I don't know that I ever really have. I mean, I think I just kind of pictured, I don't even know. I probably pictured something from a video game. So this is a spotlight beaming down from heaven just around Saul. It's, it's profound. And it, it, it's a blinding light because he is blinded. It knocks him down. It is an appearance of the glorious, risen Lord Jesus Christ. As he went on his way, as he approached Damascus, other accounts say it was about noon. They also say he was almost there. He was right outside of Damascus. I think it's instructive that we see here the necessity of a personal encounter. Now, it's not necessary, and I don't think this text is teaching that everyone must have a Damascus Road experience where you are blinded by the light. That's unique 
to Saul. But it's not unique to Saul that everyone must, in their heart of hearts, and in their real life, have a personal encounter with the real Jesus. Absolutely necessary. Rest and renew my faith in the real Jesus, the Jesus who can and must be known through personal encounter. Continuing, look at verse 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, watch this, Saul, Saul. It's repetition. It's, it's intentional. Jesus is like, I'm not saying your name once. Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Can you imagine this? Saul being like, I'm not, what am I doing to you? I'm just going to arrest Christians. Like, stop taking everything so personally. And Jesus is like, no, that's exactly the point. That is me. That is me. Jesus so identifies with his church, with his people, with Christians, with the body of Christ, that when Saul is persecuting Christians, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And you're like, okay. But he actually doubles down on it. Saul's like, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus. And then he's like, let me repeat, whom you are persecuting. Why is this like, I think, really worth us noting? Because of how much Jesus identifies with you when you're one of his people. He's like, that's me you're persecuting. I'm so bonded with them through their faith in me, through my death on the cross in their place for them. That's me. Personal encounter. He continues in verse 5. He said, uh, Saul says, who are you? Isn't that interesting? Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Isn't this fascinating? This is a highly trained religious leader. This is someone who knows more Bible than you or I could ever dream to know. This is a highly trained Pharisee who professionally told people who God really is, how he was correct, and they were wrong, and that they needed to work on their theology. That's who this is. And when he encounters the real God, he's like, who are you? He doesn't know. What made Saul fall down one pastor said, and I quote, was not the light or the voice. It was the collision with the truth. <laughs> A personal encounter. Verse 6, he says, look at this, look at verse 6. Jesus says, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Make a note that God saves people to do something in spite of what they've done. God has a purpose for every one of his people's lives. Rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. 
Someone else's personal encounter can never be your personal encounter. These men, they saw something. They were as close as anyone could be to the revelation of the risen Christ to Saul, and yet it was not their personal encounter with the Jesus. And so they were not changed. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into, now he's there, in Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So basically he went to the Sky Cave retreats with Aaron Rodgers for a darkness retreat to try to figure out if he should continue or retire from the NFL. Uh, that's from the news recently, a football player who's famous who uh, probably shouldn't be making it into a sermon this morning. But anyways, he went to a darkness retreat. And I was really fascinated by it because it was like for three days. And I was like, oh man, it's just so biblical. And, and I was reading on the website, unfortunately, about this place. And the leader of it says, darkness is my teacher. I'm like, okay, that sounds kind of weird. And another testimonial said, the thing I realized most from my darkness retreat was that you have everything you need and you are everything you need. Okay. Different darkness retreat for Saul. Very different. He's got his eyes open, but he can't see. He's hungry and he's thirsty. It's a picture physically of what his life has actually been spiritually and morally. Eyes open, but actually can't see. Look like you can see, but can't see. You look full, but you're hungry. You're thirsty. And so Saul is in his biblical darkness retreat where the goal is not to encounter oneself, but to encounter the living Christ through a personal encounter. And he's led into Damascus. And again, the point that I think we are to take away from these verses is that we should, friends, rest and renew our faith. If you've never done this before, you need to rest your faith in Jesus, the real Jesus. And it must be through a personal encounter. If you've done that before and you know you have, renew your faith in the real Jesus who can and must be known by personal encounter. And third, this morning from verses 10 through 19, rest and renew my faith in the Jesus who has a design and desire for his church to play a major role in the life of every believer. It's really important, I think, that we see this, actually. Have you ever been a part of, or maybe you even planned one yourself, an elaborate engagement proposal? Maybe you had one. Maybe one of your friends had one, and you had to play a part in it. Like you had to stand somewhere and hold some candles, or you had to take photos, or you were a part of an elaborate marriage proposal, like all right, first we're going to a Carolina Hurricanes game and I'm paying in a lot of extra money for our names to be up on the marquee. 
Then we're going to go to Carter-Finley Stadium where I've rented the whole place out and we're going to walk to the 50-yard line together and the lights are going to shine down on us. But I'm still not going to pop the question. Just having a nice night. Then we're going to go to Lake Johnson and we're going to walk across the bridge holding hands. Then I'm going to go to the bell tower and I'm going to just be there because we went on a date there one time. And then we're going to go to Angus Barn. And at Angus Barn... I'm going to ask you to marry me. An elaborate Raleigh marriage proposal. You can steal that if you want. Um, Why do I share that? Because I actually think we need to behold God's elaborate engineering of this situation. There's an important relationship that God is establishing here. Let's just look at it, verse 11, or verse 10. And there was a disciple named Ananias, The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So just note that the Lord is orchestrating an elaborate plan, not just to save and rescue and commission Saul to a new purpose in life, but to connect him with Ananias and with the church. Now, it's interesting, and I don't want us to miss this. Look at how Ananias responds to the personal encounter with Jesus. Do you see it? He says, Ananias. And Ananias says, here I am, Lord. That's the discipleship difference. It says that there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And when Jesus calls his name, he says, here I am, Lord. The discipleship difference. A person who knows the voice of Jesus and whose response to the voice of Jesus from the Word of God is, I'm ready to obey. Verse 11, and the Lord said to him, to Ananias, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. (laughs) I love this verse. You know, Saul is, is renowned in Jerusalem. He's got his letters from the high priest. He's ready to arrest Christians. And Jesus is like, You're from Tarsus. I know you. Ananias, there's a guy from Tarsus named Saul. He's on Straight Street. This is still a street in Damascus. He's on Straight Street at the house of Judas. And he's praying. He's having his darkness retreat. In verse 12 it says, And he has, Saul has seen a vision. A man named Ananias has come in in the vision and laid his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered. So here's Ananias answering. It kind of reminds you of Moses at the burning bush. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. It's such an interesting prayer life, right? It's like, Yes, Lord, here am I. And then it's like, Lord, let me tell you, my omniscient Father in heaven, something you already know about this guy. Lord, I've heard from many about this man. And so I just want to let you know, Lord, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias is in effect saying, surely you're mistaken, Lord. You would not want me, your faithful disciple, to go and be arrested by this guy. And God's reply to Ananias, Jesus' reply to Ananias, 
says in verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. I love that. I mean, it's like, yeah, just go, go. I'm not even really going to answer your concerns. I'm just going to tell you, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias, now seeing that he wasn't going to win a debate with Jesus and get the plan changed, verse 17, as a disciple ought to do, so Ananias, he went, he departed, and he entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, watch this, Brother Saul. As a Christian, the first words that Saul heard from a Christian, brother, brother Saul. He says, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Just picture the scene. Ananias lays his hands on Saul. Not one hand, both hands. You can't attend virtually, Ananias. Nope. You can't email your care to Saul in this situation. You can't lay your hands on someone without being within two feet of them. Presence, community. Immediately, something, verse 18, like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And so here, I think, is the key question that we have to ask of these verses involving Saul and Ananias, and it's this. Why did God choose to restore Saul's sight through Ananias? Why do you think? Why did God go out of his way to orchestrate an elaborate plan involving two separate visions to two separate men? And with the second man, it would be him needing to overcome fear to enact this plan. Why go to all that trouble when Jesus could have just restored Saul's sight himself? Why? Why do you think it happened? And why do you think God in Acts 9 wants to make sure that we see that this happened? Why? A few reasons, I think. One is to show us through a double vision and through all of these factors that this is unmistakably Jesus' idea. But I think another is to show Saul that he needs Christian community. He needs the church. He's come to arrest them, to destroy them, to persecute them, but he needs them. He's down on the church. He doesn't like the church. He's got church hurt, but he needs the church. He needs Christian community. It's important to see that. He needs to be called brother by a brother. He needs to have a meal, to have food. 
He needs to be baptized, this picture of identification with Jesus Christ, but also with believers, your fellow believers in Christ. So it's to show every believer their need for Christian community. It's also to show every believer that they need to accept and even love and disciple their enemies when their enemies become followers of Jesus. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to be an Ananias, to roll up your sleeves and go to the Saul? So we must rest and renew our faith in the real Jesus who seeks and saves the lost, who can and must be known by personal encounter, and who designs and desires for the church to play a major role in your life. Let's pray.